0: What is the most important thing in your life? What is it that motivates you to keep on going? What, what drives you? What gives you meaning and purpose? What or who do you live for? In our passage today, we, we see a great example of a man who was single-minded about what he lived for. He knew what life was about. And he lived it accordingly. He lived what I would call a gospel-driven life. And from his example, the Holy Spirit teaches us that the most important thing in the world is the advance of the gospel. And the gospel-driven person has the gospel as their top priority. Above personal comfort and freedom. Above personal gain. Above life and death itself. You may remember that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison. And we see from his attitude that the gospel is more important to him than his freedom or comfort. And so when he writes to his friends from prison, he, he doesn't complain about the food, he doesn't complain about the condition of his cell, doesn't grumble about his cellmate who snores. When he comes to give them news, his first concern is to tell them, how is this situation affecting the spread of the gospel? Because the spread of the gospel is his primary concern, and he expects it to be their primary concern, uh, above everything else. So after he's told them how he prays for them, he tells them what his imprisonment means for the spread of the gospel. And so verse 12 he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now that's surprising, isn't it? Uh, Everything is going wrong. You know, he's the apostle of the Gentiles, supposed to be preaching everywhere, and now he's in prison. But he says, actually, it's served to advance the gospel. Isn't that great? God is still in control. He's still carrying out his purposes. And what happened to Paul, God is using. Now, how is it advancing the gospel for him to be in prison? Wouldn't it be better for him to be out there preaching? Well, first of all, Paul had an opportunity to preach the gods, and the gospel spread around them. Uh, verse 13 says, so it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now let me tell you, if I were Paul, I would be sorely tempted to shut up when it came to the guards. Right? Having preached the gospel across the known world, uh, I would probably be quite happy with the job I've done, and I'd be tempted to think, now I'm in prison, I'm going to lie low for a little while. All right? I've already been caught, I've already been curtailed in my activities, can't make too many waves, i want to be released, but that's not Paul. He's as tireless and enthusiastic about the gospel as ever. You can arrest him, but you can't stop him. He's so gospel-driven, he's even preaching the gospel to the guards. The cheek of it. And the result of his imprisonment is the whole palace guard and everyone else around comes to hear about Christ. Isn't that wonderful? See, the gospel is so significant to him that he doesn't shut up. And his imprisonment actually serves to advance the gospel, which is the most important thing. The second way Paul's imprisonment advances the gospel is by emboldening other Christians. And look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see Paul's imprisonment has motivated the Christians in Rome. And you see, sometimes you know something is true, but you need to see a live example before acting on it. Right? Sometimes it takes the action of a bold leader, to inspire the troops to, to follow his example. And it's like that with the Gospel. You know the Gospel is worth everything. And when you see someone like Paul actually acting on that conviction, that gives you the courage to do the same. And that's what happened to Christians in Rome. When they saw the sacrifices he made for the gospel, they said, yeah, actually he's right. That's important. Of course it's worth living for. Of course it's worth dying for. Of course it's worth preaching. Of course it's worth risking imprisonment to do it. That, that's right. We knew that actually before we saw you, Paul. But when we saw you cheerfully going to prison for the gospel, we've got to say, actually, yeah. Yeah, we're willing to do that as well. We're willing to take personal risk for the sake of the gospel. We know it's scary, we know it's dangerous, we're going to do it anyway. Because you showed it by your example. That's far more important than personal comfort or okay. gain. in this. And that would have been what it was like for the Christians in Rome when they saw Paul suffering, and now this is what it's going to be like for the Christians in Philippi when they read about it. And, and that, that's, for us, as we well, read about it today. You want to join Paul and being driven by the gospel. Paul's prison imprisonment has actually has served to advance the gospel. And if his imprisonment serves to advance the gospel, then Paul says he's happy. Because he knows the gospel is more important than personal comfort and freedom. gospel-driven person knows that. Well, Second thing we see, the gospel is more important than, than personal rivalry. You see, first century Christians were no less sinful than 21st century Christians. And some of them were even preaching the gospel for bad reasons. Verse 15 to 17. Some indeed preach the gospel from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, no, I'm doing here, knowing that I'm here for the put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Not, not everyone in Rome likes Paul. Right? Some recognised him as, as their apostle. They knew God had appointed him to defend the gospel, but others didn't. And the church of Rome was there before Paul got there, and there might have been prominent people in the church who didn't like this guy encroaching on their territory, and They weren't false teachers or anything like that. They were preaching the true gospel. They were preaching Christ. Preached the same message as Paul preached. uh, But they didn't do it for the right reasons. Uh, Verse 70 tells us they wanted to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. It's uh, an ironic third way in which the advancement of the gospel comes from Paul's imprisonment. When it says afflict him, it may be that You know, they want to make Christianity more prominent so Paul gets a harder time in prison, but it seems more likely, actually, that they want to afflict him on the inside. They want to stir up trouble for him on the inside. They want to upset him. They want to worry him. They want to afflict him by competing with him. Making sure their group is growing more quickly than Paul's. Their converts are more numerous and more influential than Paul's. They want to make sure, they make Paul's change more painful as it were, when he hears the anti-Paul group is, is growing and more and more people are getting converted and Paul can't do anything about it and it's a sobering thought, isn't it? That you can preach the right gospel for the wrong reasons. Something we need to be aware of in others and something we need to remember for ourselves. We need to keep checking our own motivations. Some people preach Christ out of selfish ambition and envy and rivalry and not out of love. Now what's Paul going to do? do about this? How's he going to respond? Now, you remember how strongly he comes out against false teachers and other epistles? Uh, even in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 when he's talking about the false teachers who are preaching a false gospel, he says, chapter 3 verse two, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's very strong against them, but because he knows a false gospel cannot save, it will lead people away from Christ, lead them to hell. But, but here it's different. These guys are not distorting the gospel, they're just spiting Paul. to really going to get all anxious and uptight about them and them winning more converts. And What does he say, verse 18? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that, I rejoice. He's happy. He doesn't care if they're doing it to spite him. He doesn't care if they appear to be more successful or, or better than he is. He doesn't care if they end to be more, more preaching, more converts who are not his support. He doesn't care. Why? Because he's not in it for himself. He's not in it for the glory. He's not in it for the recognition or the prestige. He's not in it for his ego. What he wants is for the gospel to go out. And it is. For Paul, the advance to the gospel is a significant thing. And the gospel is more important than personal rivalry. And if the gospel is going out, then, then he's happy. The most important thing, he says, in that in, is that in every way, whether from false motives or truth, Christ is being preached. And friends, that's all we need to care about. If there is personal rivalry in gospel ministry, well, we mustn't buy into it. It doesn't matter who's got a bigger church. It doesn't matter if you're in a bigger cell group or someone else. It doesn't matter if you've got a more prominent role or I've got a more prominent Who cares? What matters is that Christ is being preached. It matters that the gospel is going out. Whether you do it or I do it or someone else does it, it's, it's immaterial. When it comes to personal rivalry, concentrate on the gospel and rejoice when people who are seen as your rivals proclaim the gospel of Jesus and win people to him. Rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that It's okay for us to preach a gospel from false motives. It's not a license for doing the wrong thing. Paul's rivals will have to answer to Jesus. Not only for what they did, but why they did it. And if our ministry is done for the wrong reason, it won't survive the Judgment Day test. We won't receive a reward. But those guys, they weren't answerable to Paul. They were answerable to Jesus. If they're preaching the wrong gospel, Paul will fight them. If they're preaching the true gospel for the wrong reasons, he'll leave it to God. And that's what we should be doing as well. gospel-driven person knows that the gospel of Jesus is far more important than anything else. Certainly more important than petty rivalries. Next we see the gospel is more important than life and death itself. Because for the gospel-driven person, the gospel is worth dying for and living for. Let us how Paul talks as he moves on to his own situation. Listen carefully as we read of his struggles. We see how a gospel-driven person wrestles with the possibilities about the future. Now, the first thing we notice is the gospel gives Paul confidence in the end from the second half of verse 18. It says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. When he says, this will turn out for my deliverance, he's borrowing a phrase from Job chapter 13, verse 6. And Job 13, verse 6, Job knows he's innocent of sin, he claims trial before God, Uh, and he says, if God judges him, uh, he will be found to be right. It says in uh, verse uh, verse 16, rather than verse 6, it says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man will dare come before him. And, And Paul's got the same confidence as Job did. He's in prison, he's going to appear before a human judge. But whatever his earthly judge says, he knows what his final judge will say, the heavenly one. Whether he's executed or released by his earthly judge, he knows where he stands with God, his heavenly judge. Because he knows the gospel. He knows that Jesus died in his place on the cross. He knows that Jesus rose again. And the judge on the last day will be none other than the risen Jesus himself, who loved him, gave himself for him. So whatever the process, whatever happens between now and then, the end point is secure. So he can rejoice because he knows his ultimate future. He will be delivered, he will be rescued, he will be saved. And he also knows that he is to persevere to the end if the gospel will save him in the end. But he knows this will happen, remember in verse 19, why? Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is, their prayers, the Spirit, will enable them to persevere to the end in trusting in Christ and so be delivered on the Day of Judgment. In the, in the, uh, the New Testament, it's written in Greek and in the construction of this sentence that the, the Spirit, the help of the Spirit and the prayers of the Philippians are very, very closely linked together in, in, into one, one one complex. Because you see, as the Philippians are praying for Paul, the Spirit of Jesus helps him. And the Spirit keeps him, supports him, enables him to be faithful so that he will be saved, that he will be delivered on the last day. And so just as Paul prayed for the Philippians before, we read that they will be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, we saw that last week, Philippians also praying for Paul, uh, that he will be ultimately saved at the end. And God, who keeps us by the power of his Spirit, answers the prayers of both. And so just as a side thing, brothers and sisters, let's remember to pray for each other. Let's remember to pray for our leaders, our gospel partners together. The Spirit will enable us to persevere, to keep trusting the gospel, so that whatever happens turns out in the end for our deliverance. And we can be confident that God will hear our prayer, that God will keep those who belong to him. And that whatever happens, in the end we will be delivered, rescued, saved through the gospel. So the gospel gives us confidence for the end. Now, if we know that the end result will be good, if we know that we will be with Christ in glory at the end, then we are released from having to worry about our ultimate futures. It doesn't matter if we live or die. It's all good in the end. What does matter is how we live or die. And what does matter is Why we live or die. doesn't matter if we live or die. It's how we live and die. And it's why we live and die. That is the important thing. That is what matters. And we are to live and we are to die for what really, really, really matters. The glory of God. And so Paul says in verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope That with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. See, this this guy is in prison. There's a good chance he's going to be executed. What's he going to pray for? What's he going to hope for? It's not, oh God, deliver me from these chains. God, I want a miracle like Peter had when he was in Jerusalem. He's got, he's got better priorities. His one goal in death and in life is to glorify Christ. To exalt Christ. That's all he wants to do. And so his eager expectation and hope is that he would not be ashamed. That he would have full courage to stay the course, to keep the faith through the persevering work of the Spirit and the prayers of the Philippians. That's all he wants to see. It doesn't matter if he lives or dies. And there is his famous personal confession, the motto of the Gospel-driven Christian, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. The gospel gives poor confidence to say, yes, it's going to be good if I die. Not only do I exalt Christ by my death, I get to be with him. And that's heaps better than being in this world, isn't it? But, also prepared to live. And if I live, then I live for Christ. He wants Christ to be exalted in his life, and if he dies, he knows where he's going. My brother says, that's not just Paul. There are millions of people around the world who have been so gripped by the gospel that they are willing to live and die for the glory of Jesus. Who have been courageous, like Paul, I pray that he would be here. Faithful to the end. Let me just give you one example. This guy's name was Polycarp. The account of his death is well documented in history. Uh, Polycarp was in the second generation of Christians. He was born in 69 AD, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, a lady became Bishop of Smyrna and actually, the interesting thing is he actually wrote a letter to the Philippians as well uh, and he talks about the letter that Paul wrote you before. Polycarp was an old man by the time he was arrested, he was brought before the Roman proconsul, who was like a judge and he was a lovely, gentle old man who had served the Lord Jesus faithfully throughout his life. And despite the angry mob, the, the proconsul took pity on him, tried to help him. He said, look, just, just say, Caesar is Lord. And just, just make that, take a small pinch of incense, right, offer it to Caesar's statue. Say, Caesar is Lord. That's it, just go and you can go home no torture, no death, who look after you. This is what Paul Kapat said. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my King who saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of the judgment to come, and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. So Polycarp, the last of the people who were personally taught by the Apostles, was burned and died February 23rd, 155 AD. Someone who lived for Jesus, died for Jesus. Like Paul, not ashamed sufficient courage that Christ was exalted by his death. For he knew the gospel of Jesus was more important than life or death. And that is the same experience for millions of people. And I know there are people here who face persecution, who face difficulty, who say, I live for Christ. If I die, that's fine. Now, I just want to take a little break from the main argument of the sermon to explore a little side point, excursus, uh, because something that um, people often ask me about, and, it's, and, it's, uh, and it comes up in this passage here, uh, is the question of what happens when you die, if you're a believer. Right? Um, because uh, the Bible's emphasis is always on the resurrection, isn't it? You keep on emphasizing the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, when Christ comes back, there's the resurrection, and Jesus judges the world, end of the story, we receive our new bodies. And God brings in a new heaven and new earth, all is renewed. And friends, that is our ultimate hope, that is the final goal, that's the thing we're really, really waiting for. So what happens between the time, let's say you haven't died when Jesus comes back, that when you die, and when Jesus comes back and our bodies are raised, well what happens? Well the answer is those who belong to Christ are with Christ. Remember the thief on the cross? Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we haven't got to our resurrection yet. That is the that is the final goal. Okay, that's where it's meant to be, right? Because we're meant to be physical people. By the way, God's made us this way. Physical, that's 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 the ultimate. That's how it's that's the best thing. But in between there's still this intermediate state. We're looking forward to the end, but Paul says it's much, much better than being in this world. Okay, verse twenty three he says uh he says My desire is to depart depart see he's leaving part and to be with Christ and that is far better. Right? So for the Christian, if you desire you are you are depart. And you are with Christ. That is better than it is being here. And that is in contrast to verse twenty four, remaining in the flesh. Same kind of thing you pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to keep your finger in Philippians, and quickly look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 6 um, talks about, 2 page 1163 if you're, if you're looking it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6, page 1163. We are always of good courage. We know while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord walk by faith not by sight verse 8 yes we have good courage for we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord See. All right, so in between our death and our resurrection right, those who are with Christ, those who are in Christ are without the body but with the Lord All right, so it's not soul sleep All right, it's not like suddenly you die and bang you're at the resurrection day already. It's not that. Okay, because they say, depart from the body. We won't remain in the flesh. Not resurrection yet. Still waiting for that. That's the ultimate thing. But we are with the Lord. Uh, We'll be perfectly fine. Perfectly secure. Absolutely safe. Which is better by far than being in this world. So we don't need to be prayed for. As if there was some uncertainty about that matter don't need our children to pray for us like the Taoists do or have special burial summaries to make sure the soul goes to heaven like our Hindu friends, don't have to have people say masses for us to get us out of purgatory quickly like our Catholic friends. To be in Christ is to be, to die in Christ means to be with him, even while we wait for the resurrection and the ultimate glory. That is better by far. Does that make sense? Okay, come and talk to me later if you want to discuss it more, okay? Back to, back to what we're doing now. Now, many of you remember uh, Sue Harrington, who was with us at smack uh, If you don't know her, Sue is the pastor of, uh, sorry, she's married to Paul Harrington, who is the uh, senior pastor of the church that Judy and I were in uh, when we were in, uh, in Adelaide, and Paul and Sue were here for a uh, which is where many of you, many of you met her. Met her. Um, uh, we've known each other for many years, and one of those very old stories from from, uh, from I don't know when. Uh, but it was time when uh, Sue had to complete a psychological questionnaire. Uh, I can't remember why. Uh, I don't know if it was a job application or something like that. And, and when she got her results, there was a bit of contradiction there, and a bit of concern. They were wondering if she was very depressed. And she said, no, no, I'm not depressed at all. Um, she she was, She's fine. Now, now she might have been, right? Christians suffer depression as much as anyone else. But She wasn't depressed, and yet these results came up kind of strange. And until they looked carefully at the answer that she's given and why it come out this way, see, in the questionnaire she put a strong yes beside things like "I would be better off dead" and "Things will be better for me when I die." And you know, "I'd rather die than live." And people thought that she hated being alive, but she didn't. She she loved being alive, but she knew that, that being with Christ would be far better going, yeah, better if I die. Be with Christ, live with him. So Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the gospel gives us confidence in the face of death. Remember, it doesn't matter if you live or if you die. It matters how you live, how you die, why you live, why you die. The gospel is not just worth dying for, though. It is. It's also worth living for, isn't it? Paul doesn't just say to die is gain. He says to live is Christ. He is the reason for everything I do, he says. He is the inspiration. Life has no meaning of him. him is the point of everything. So he says, verse 22-23, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Well, that is far better. That is what he prefers. But, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you notice something very strange here? Paul expects to stay alive. Why? For the sake of the Philippians. For their progress and joy in the faith. For their growth in knowing Christ. He expects to live for their sake. And even ultimately though, even his work for the Philippians has got a higher goal, verse 26, he says... So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, his ultimate goal is the glory of Christ Jesus. His aim—he want to live so that he can serve them. Why? So that through their glory, through their progress and the joy and the faith, their glorying, their boasting in Christ Jesus would would abound. That they would speak more and more of Christ. They would glory in Christ. They would appreciate Christ more and more. And he reckons that is worth living for. That is why he is alive. The glorified Christ. Isn't that fantastic? Friends, are we living for the glory of Christ? Are we convinced that Christ will be glorified as our brothers and sisters grow in him? Are we living for the progress of the gospel in the lives of our brothers and sisters? That Christ will be glorified more and more and boasted about more and more by our family members, our cell group members, people in our congregation, those we care about. Would we choose to live rather than die for the simple reason that we can serve our gospel partners to the glory of Christ? To live is Christ, friends. To live is Christ. Otherwise, you're wasting your life. You may as well die and be with Christ, which is better by far. And listen to me, friends. If Paul could choose between life and death on the basis of what is good for his brothers and sisters, for their progress and joy in the faith, Can we not do so for lesser decisions? Can we not start with the little things like which job we choose to take or who we choose to marry or where we're going to live and work out what's good for our brothers and sisters and those that we're in partnership with for the glory of God? As a Gospel-driven person knows that the advance of the Gospel And the growth of the gospel in the lives of other people is more important than life or death itself. You see, the Apostle Paul was single-minded about Christ and his gospel. Enemies of the gospel could put him in prison, but he didn't care about being in prison as long as the gospel was advancing. Other Christians could compete with him. And he was happy as long as the gospel was advancing. He wasn't concerned about building his empire. He wanted people to hear the gospel.
1: He would like to have
0: died and gone to be with Christ, but decided it's better to live. Why? For the sake of the growth of those who are his partners in the gospel. He was really driven by the gospel. Are we driven by the gospel, brothers and sisters? Are we willing to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel?
1: Have we been so gripped
0: by the gospel that our priorities, our mentality, our way of thinking, whether in good times or bad times, be transformed by it? Can we analyze every situation that we are in and say, what does this mean for the gospel? Does this serve to advance the gospel? What is more important to us? Our personal comfort and freedom? Of the advance of the gospel. Our position and reputation. Or the gospel. Our life and death. Or the gospel. We can rejoice over trivial things like. Someone kicking a ball into a net on the other side of the world. How much more should we rejoice. when The gospel goes out. People are saved. People are growing, progressing, and knowing the Lord Jesus. That's got to be our priority. Brothers and sisters, we talked a lot about being gospel-driven and said that the Answer the gospel is the most important thing that Paul's in change for the gospel. The gospel's worth living for and dying for. What about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel? And it's right to talk about it this way because Paul does, but follow Paul's example about being single-mindedness, being single-minded about it. And never forget that. When Paul talks about the gospel, when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is just a shorthand way of saying The announcement that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he died for our sins on the cross, that he rose again as Lord and King of all. See, the gospel is all about Jesus. And being gospel-driven is simply being motivated by Jesus and being preoccupied with his kingdom and his glory. Being gospel-driven means being centered on Christ, For when the gospel advances, Jesus is glorified. And the most important thing in the world is the advance of the gospel because the most important thing in the world is that Christ is glorified. So, brothers and sisters, be gospel-driven. Live for the kingdom. And when you live for the gospel, then you are not just living for a cause. You are living for a person. You are called by a person who is God and man, who is indeed worthy of your full allegiance, who loves you, who died for you on the cross, taking your sin and guilt and punishment in your place, and who deserves all the honor and glory. To live is Christ. And his gospel is the most important thing in the world.